So, you know, if, uh, if our flag presentation this morning uh, didn't make your heart flutter just a little bit, uh, I'm not sure what would. Because uh, as those flags pass by, they symbolize the things that we as Americans hold in our hearts. Uh, they symbolize our, our power and our resolve to protect our loved ones and to defend our homes and to preserve our religious freedoms and and our sacred beliefs. They represent the men and women who have served with distinction in our uh, military branches. And, and I thank you, all of you men and women that, that stood. Uh, we appreciate your service very much. And you know, those flags represent our rightful pride in the good that this nation has accomplished, both here and around the world. And in particular, we have pride uh, in this great American flag standing there in its place of honor. A flag that since its inception in June 14th of 1777 uh, by an act of the Continental Congress has been proudly flown by generations of Americans as a symbol of our God-given freedom uh, and as a recognition that we are a God-blessed nation. And even though, unfortunately, many churches uh, across our country have removed our national flag from their sanctuaries, we choose here uh, self-consciously, intentionally, uh, here to embrace our flag in the light of our study of the scriptures, in deference to our founding fathers, uh, and with respect to the men and women who defended every single day, the men and women who defended from those who would destroy our way of life and uh, trample underfoot the stars and stripes as a symbol of freedom brought forth and sustained by our Creator. And today in Psalm 20, and for those of you that are here for the first time, uh, we're taking an, a really long expository look through the book of Psalms. So uh, we're up to Psalm 20. And today we're going to see how the psalmist King David echoes that kind of sentiment that we've been talking about as he tells us that people in every age should mark the Lord's victories in our lives and that God's people are to display their loyalty in raising both actual and metaphorical flags in his name. So if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to uh, Psalm chapter 20. <clears throat> beginning in verse 1 in the superscription reads to the choir master a psalm of David and he writes may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble may the name of the God of Jacob protect you may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices Selah may he grant you your heart's desire and fill all, fulfill all of your plans. May we shout for joy over our salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise up and stand upright. O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And I know, uh, of course, that you all recognized our national anthem this morning uh, that accompanied our uh, posting of the colors because I could hear you all singing along. And uh, I'm sure you kind of know the first stanza of the national anthem by heart. But what you may not know is it actually has four stanzas. Uh, and in the fourth stanza are these words, Praise and power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must, 
when our cause is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. And you know, that fourth stanza, uh, of course, being the inspiration for our national motto, in God we trust. But you know, trust is one of those words that as Christians we kind of throw around a lot, don't we? I know uh, growing up I always heard people say, well, just trust God. Trust God. Trust and more times than I can count. And for a long time I thought, well, I, I trust God. I believe in God. But how can you trust in a plan when you don't know what his plan is for you? And how can you trust his plan when everything in the world around us just seems increasingly to be so unworthy of trust? Kind of like uh, last week I read a story about a, a man who late one night was uh, driving around town and he was speeding quite a bit uh, when a police officer noticed just how fast he was going and pulled him over. And, you know, the officer comes up to the window like they do and says to the man, uh, Sir, are you aware how fast you were going? Uh, and the man replied, uh, Yes, officer, but I'm trying to escape a robbery that I got involved in. <laughs> so... The cop kind of gives him a skeptical look and says, wait, you were in a robbery? And the man said, oh, oh no, sir, I committed the robbery. <laughs> and now, of course, the officer was shocked and he said, so you're telling me that you were speeding and you committed a robbery? Oh, yeah, the man said, and I have the loot in the trunk. <laughs> and now the cop's getting kind of agitated and he says, uh, sir, I'm going to need you to step out of the vehicle so I can search it. And the man says, no, 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 don't do that because I'm afraid you'll find my gun in the glove compartment. <laughs> so the officer said, wait right here, don't move, I'm going to call for backup. And pretty soon his commanding officer and uh, dozens of squad cars and helicopters flood the area. Uh, and within minutes they have the man handcuffed, uh, pulled aside, and they stand him beside the uh, officer that pulled him over while a team of investigators search the car. So they complete their work, they give their report to the commanding officer, he walks over to the alleged criminal and to the officer that pulled him over, and he gestures to the cop and says, Sir, uh, this officer radioed in that you had committed a robbery, uh, that you had stolen loot in the trunk of your car, that you had a loaded gun in your glove box, but we didn't find any of that. To which the man said, Yeah, and I'll bet that liar said I'd been speeding too. <laughs> This goes to show you can't trust anybody, can you? <laughs> can't trust anybody. You know, e even though that's what we really all are looking for, isn't it? Something to trust in. Something concrete, something tangible that we can center our hopes and our expectations on. Something strong. Something powerful. Something so reliable that we could bet our lives on it. But what? But what? Uh, you know, if we trust in money, it's real easily gone, and there's always somebody that's got more. If we trust in fame and popular opinion, uh, it can disappear in an instant. If we trust in our health, it only takes one phone call from the doctor's office for that to be shattered. And all of those things are, are true on a personal level, but you know, they're also true uh, even more so on a larger national level. You know, because as a country, we can't always rely solely on our economic strength or on our diplomatic clout or even on our weapons of mass destruction because no matter where we turn, 
there's always another enemy to face. And that was uh, equally true 3,000 years ago for the people of Israel. Because everywhere they looked, there was, was conflict, uh, both internal and external. Uh, there were uh, people with weapons and armies ready to come against them. And in the face of all of that, David says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And you know, at first glance, when you read that, it almost sounds like a, a kind of blind trust, doesn't it? I mean, just in comparison, you know, some trust in chariots and some in horses. These are war machines of the day. And my history buffs out there, if you remember, the Egyptians and the Assyrians uh, all had a lot of military success due in large part to their, uh, their chariots and their horses. Because if you had chariots, you had military power. Uh, if you had fine horses, you had national pride. Uh, today, that would be like us saying we trust in our, uh, in our tanks and our, our submarines and our machine guns and our cruise missiles. Now, that sounds like something you can put your trust in, doesn't it? I mean, humanly speaking, military might is uh, it's visible. It's quantifiable, especially when you compare it to something that is so hard to wrap your mind around, just like saying we trust in the name of the Lord. But, you know, David encouraged the people of his day and of ours let humanity go ahead and put their confidence in the things that they can see and the things they can hear and the things that they can touch because ultimately those things all collapse and fall but we rise and stand upright and now don't misunderstand though the israelites had weapons uh, they had a strategy for battle they had a plan to succeed and they worked out that plan so it's not that David is saying that we should show up to life unprepared, but rather what he's saying is try out your plans, but trust in your God. Try out your plans, but trust in your God. And now admittedly, that's real easy to say when everything is going smoothly, uh, but not quite so much when the things of the world knock us for a loop. So to kind of get a handle on what he's talking about, I want us to look really quickly at the Hebrew word for trust that David uses here. So we can get a, an understanding of what he's trying to say to us. And if you look at the text, the word, uh, the English translation for the word that David uses here uh, in the Hebrew is Sahar. And it's just a word that comes from a root that means to remember. It means to remember. Uh, in fact, if you guys have a King James Version with you that you're looking at, the translators of the 1611 version take this verse 7 and say, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember... We will remember the name of the Lord our God. And so David is saying that uh, other people and other nations can talk about their military strength. They can invoke their man-made power, but that he and the people of Israel, on the other hand, are going to be talking about their God. And that they were invoking his power and remembering his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. And brothers and sisters, that hasn't changed. So if that's really the case, then how do we start to apply that to our lives today. Uh, how does Psalm 20 become something more than a simple historical text? Uh, how do David's words cause the name of the Lord to be remembered and trusted today? And so firstly, if trusting God means remembering him, then the things of God should be something that we're saturating our lives with. We, we talked about that at length in Sunday school. We should be remembering God's faithfulness in the past and because of that faithfulness, be confident in his help in the present as well as in the future. 
But, you know, just like the people of Israel, we don't always do that, do we? You know, if you remember the story on the day that, uh, that God's people are freed from Egypt, God impresses upon them through Moses in Exodus chapter 13. He says, remember, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Now, you would think that they would remember such a massive undertaking on the part of God, wouldn't you? Uh, and you'd remember such a life-altering event like being delivered from slavery. Uh, but they don't, and, and very quickly. You know, when they're journeying, uh, God's people come to the Red Sea, and, and they're trapped. And if you remember, Pharaoh and his armies had changed their mind about letting them go, and they come charging after them, and the Israelites have nowhere to go. But instead of remembering the power of God that had already delivered them, they panic. And they cry out in, in doubt and, and fear and anguish. And they actually end up blaming Moses for leading them out of Egypt in the first place. Uh, and they start complaining and start wishing out loud that they would have just stayed slaves. Why? Well, for one reason, because they had allowed themselves to forget the ten miraculous plagues and the demonstrations of power that God had wrought to bring them out of bondage. They had forgotten to remember God's faithfulness and his power. But you know, right then, in the midst of all of that, we read one of the most amazing and exciting deliverances recorded in the Bible, at the parting of the Red Sea. And in Exodus 14, uh, we read, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And they passed through on dry land. And when you read that, do you, do you guys ever try to imagine those scenes as we read them in the Bible? I know I do. And you know, that would be so epic to see. Uh, can you just imagine walking between two huge uh, walls of water? And I always wonder, this is probably just in my own head, if they saw fish swimming around like we do at the aquariums. You know, that's probably just me. But right then, they also get to watch the Egyptian army be completely destroyed and know that it was for them, to know that they were saved by it personally. Incredible, right? And yet for all of God's past deliverances and his past mercies and past faithfulness, do you know it only took him three days to forget all about it? Three days. Because just three days later, and they are again angry and afraid when they realize that they don't have any drinking water. Uh, as if providing drinking water would stump the God who had just parted a whole sea and killed a whole army, right? Unbelievable. But are we any better? Are we any different? Am I? Are you? Because, you know, when something comes at me that has the potential to harm me or to harm my family uh, or to just turn life upside down, it's real easy to panic, isn't it? Uh, especially if something like that comes at you suddenly and unexpectedly. But, you know, panic isn't what God wants for me or for you. God wants our peace, peace and rest for each of us. So no matter what we see in our circumstances, in fact, in spite of what we see in our circumstances. So then the question becomes, how can we help ourselves not to repeat the mistakes of Israel in forgetting God and his past deliverances? And one way we can do that is by talking about them. See, David tells us today, may we shout for joy over our salvation and in the name of the Lord set up our banners. And you know, I don't know about you, but I don't want to forget the things that God's done for me. 
I don't want to forget what God's done in the past. And so in addition to just remembering it, we need to declare it. We need to set up our banner of praise. It's a public declaration and it's not a flag of surrender. Instead, our banner is a battle ensign. And to set it up as a declaration of war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, and, and what we're talking about, did you ever wonder why we have banners in church here in the sanctuary? Did you ever look at them? And why at certain times we carry them in procession into the sanctuary, like on certain holidays? Well, it's because they are an important symbol of our life of faith. Uh, our sanctuary banners around here are more than just uh, decorations to brighten up the walls. They're scriptural. And you know, the earliest mention of them comes in the book of Numbers, when God tells his people uh, to camp in groups around the tabernacle, uh, and as they do, to erect banners to identify them. The scriptures also tell us in several places that uh, banners were raised to gather the people to a solemn assembly. Uh, and historically, the raising of banners have called God's people to battle. Because for centuries, it's been the custom of armies to hoist flags of victory when they conquer a town or a territory. Uh, and so since Romans 8.37 tells us we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, uh, we too, in the words of David, can shout for joy over our salvation and we can hoist our banners in celebration of the victory that God has already won for us and one not just for us but for all who are in him as he adds daily to his kingdom those that are being saved if we're being saved if we believe in David's greatest son that root of Jesse that in Isaiah 11 tells us in that day, the heir of David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. Nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. As in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time and bring back a remnant of his people. Uh, and, you know, in addition to that, in other places uh, and in other reasons that we've talked about, a raised banner is put up to signify that something significant is about to happen. Something special. And brothers and sisters, the most significant event that's happened since the creation is the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world. And he came with a mission. He came with a saving might in his right hand and with the promise of redemption to men and women of every tongue and tribe and race and nation under heaven. And to accomplish that mission through the glory and the shame of the cross. A cross whose standard post serves as a linchpin of history, and marks the one place that pulls together everything we know about God and everything we know about how the world actually works. Because it displays the victory colors of reconciliation between God's righteousness and his relentless love for us. You know, in fact, Jesus explained his mission exactly like that in, uh, in those same kind of terms when he spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he does it by reminding him uh, of another banner, a very uh, ancient banner that God had his people put up, a signpost actually that foreshadowed the cross and pointed directly to him. And if you remember the story, uh, you know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and our Lord talks to him and talks to him about the need to be born again, talks to him about uh, the mission that he was here to accomplish. And Jesus doesn't do that by feeding him a lot of doctrine that he probably wouldn't understand anyway. You know what he does? He just points him right back to the scriptures. He points him right back to the scriptures, right to that ancient signpost 
of the word of God. And, and first he talks to him about the prophet Ezekiel and the work of the water and the spirit. And, and poor old Nick still's not catching on. And he says to Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him and said, you're a teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And this is where Jesus really hits it home here and says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so Jesus retells Nicodemus the story of how God's people had forgotten so very quickly, like we were talking about, about how many times and how many ways they had forgotten to remember his deliverance and forgotten to remember how the Lord had rescued them and how they had gotten so accustomed to taking God for granted, as, as people do, that they began to complain about the food. They began to complain about the manna that God gave them every single day and about the water that he provided from the rock. And Numbers chapter 21 tells us, and they began to speak against God and Moses and ask, why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness, they complained. Uh, there's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them, and many of them were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And all who are bitten by it will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. And anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Now don't ask me how that worked because I don't know. But what I do know is that in the first place that the bronze serpent was raised high on a pole like a banner as God's means of salvation for the Israelites who had been bitten by serpents in the wilderness. And in the same way, Jesus is God's means of salvation for everyone in this world who has been bitten by the deadly venom of sin. I know the bronze serpent was a visual representation of the wrath of God against a grumbling and complaining people but that it also represented a turning away of that wrath because whoever looked at it was saved. And so it is with the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, I do know that the bronze serpent was a central and all-sufficient means of healing for the Israelites and the cross of Jesus Christ is a central and all-sufficient means of his grace. We do know that just like God chose a man, uh, chose Moses to hold up the bronze serpent on a pole so that men might be healed, God has chosen ministers to hold up the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified so that men might look to him and be saved. And just as looking at the bronze serpent on the pole probably at the time seemed like a pretty foolish means of healing a snake bite, so looking at a crucified Savior, a dying, executed man, seems a foolish means in the eyes of the world for the salvation of our souls and for a sinner condemned to death. But still... But still, as a signpost, that bronze serpent was held up for many for salvation from the deadly consequences of sin. And brothers and sisters, so is our Christ. 
our Christ lifted up in glory uh, and shame as a spectacle to the whole universe of men and angels as an emblem and a direction mark pointing always to himself as the way and the truth and the life, the eternal life to come. And so in the midst of all the worldly pursuits uh, that try to, uh, to flag us down, will you look to him instead? Will you fix your eyes on Jesus? Uh, will you shout for joy over his salvation and receive him today, not in your own strength, but in total surrender to our conquering king who stands ready to post his flag of victory in your heart today if you will but look to his royal standard, to his holy banner, and to his heavenly victory found only in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, let's pray together. God, our Father, we come now asking you to make our hearts your home. We ask you, Lord, to uh, hover over us as we gather in prayer and open our hearts and minds to receive you. Disperse, Father, any divisions among us, and so that one voice and one song we can praise your name with joy and thanksgiving, united together as the family of God, your victorious people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.